Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603-356-2137. Here's your forecast for May 12th, Friday, and May 13th, Saturday. Friday, we're looking at mostly in the clear under increasingly cloudy skies, scattered rain showers, and a slight chance of afternoon thunderstorms with mid-40s for a temp, winds west shifting northwest at 20 to 35 miles an hour, increasing to 30 to 50 miles an hour. Friday night, in and out of the clouds under mostly cloudy skies, chance of rain showers with a slight chance of thunderstorms early. Low 30s, winds northwest at 35 to 50 miles an hour, increasing to 45 to 60 miles an hour with gusts up to 70 miles an hour. Um, So in the discussion section before this section here, they comment upon the hurricane force winds that are coming in. And the Mount Washington Observatory wants us to stress to listeners that you need to read the discussion section uh, because there are other scenarios that are laid out for readers to consider, uh, which may may happen or may not. But um, always check the discussion along with the overall forecast. Saturday, in and out of the clouds, trending into the clouds. Chance of rain and snow showers. Little to no snow accumulation expected. Lower 30s decreasing to upper 20 degrees late. Wind at 45 to 60 miles an hour with gusts up to 70 miles an hour, increasing to 50 to 70 miles an hour with gusts up to 80 miles per hour. So that is Saturday. And uh, the wind chill with those winds will be 10 to 20 above, falling to 5 to 15 above. So there we go. Happy hiking, everybody.
And we are live, Stomp. How's the Mount Washington forecast looking? Oh boy, it's looking pretty rough. I was just looking at it. We have um, hurricane force winds coming this weekend. Excellent, excellent. Crazy. Fun times up above the the clouds. Yeah, I think they're shooting like 80 mile an hour winds come Saturday. So yeah, it's going to be pretty rough up there. Yeah, so when we're, we're, we're recording, we're getting like the Thursday afternoon update, so we don't know what Sunday's going to look like, but if, if mm. it um, keeps up, it'll be a little little sketchy. Everyone should be home feeding their wives and their moms that's for Mother's true. Day anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good old Mom's Day coming. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I just wanted to give the listeners a heads up that uh, they got to check out your mix that you dropped earlier in the week. I haven't got a chance to listen to too much of it. I did mm-hmm. listen to a little bit of it on a run, but uh, Stomp is getting his EDM Fix. vibes going. <laughs> Fix, yeah, he's going. So every once in a while, we'll do that on the feed for the listeners. If, if you know, I, do you have any sense? Like, are there a lot of listeners? Is there a lot of crossover between hikers and EDM fans? You know, I, I have to tell you, um, I was referred to by the Alzheimer's organization to a journalist who just literally just interviewed me by phone like 20 minutes ago, specifically about EDM, what's happening with the music at like the reckless event and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm falling into this athletic community um, culture, which is perfect for EDM. And that's sort of what I've been trying to nurture and develop here is just more of a, an exposure to the athletic community and, uh, you know, apre ski, stuff like that, you know, so it's, uh, it's been really neat. It's been well received. Um, yeah. Look at you, big shot, talking to the media yeah. stuff. You need a publicist <laughs> or what's going on? I was shocked. It's, um, it's the Mount Washington vibe uh, over on Conway. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, um, but it, in relation to that, the journalist asked, well, she told me basically that um, Slasher is pretty well known over there. I was like, wow, it's pretty neat, huh? Infamous. It's like you, you, you and I, I always say that we're just in a bubble, but um, yeah, she says that the podcast is very popular over on the, uh, the eastern side of the state. But Yeah, shout out to Megan from Alzheimer's for referring her to me and uh, that was pretty neat. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's it's pretty great. cool. Um, and then we were trying to get Mrs. Stomp on the show to sit in because we don't have a guest this week, but she's yeah. she's doing her thing. Yeah, she's out and about having some fun. Who knows? Yeah, good for her. Yeah. Good for her. All right. Let me do the show opener here, Stomp, and then we'll get into it, okay? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so welcome to episode 105 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are entering the Great Gulf with a breakdown of all the trails and sites to see within the Great Gulf wilderness. We will bring you through the various approaches you can use for day hiking and backpacking within this remote section of the White Mountains. Additionally, we will cover a refresher on the strange disappearance of a lost hiker named Stefan Porth Sue from 2019. We'll also have some updates on road openings, river crossings, the Mount Washington Auto Road, Um, We'll give you the latest drama in Conway over the Levitt County Bakery sign controversy. Um, Stomp's got some recent hiking updates. I'll have a couple of history facts about the Great Gulf, and uh, we'll have some recent search and rescue news, including a missing hiker on the Appalachian Trail. So get a beer, 
relax, and let's talk about hiking in the White Mountains for a little while. I'm yeah. Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started with the 105. Let's get started. Here I am. I'm telling everyone to get a beer, and I don't, I've been <laughs> drinking the last two months. So. Well, yeah. What's your weight down to now? I'm like stuck. I'm stuck. Mm. I was at, I started at 170. Yeah. And I dropped um, four, I 15 pounds. I, I gained a pound. I was like traveling and stuff. But I've been stuck at like 156 for the last week or so. And I've been doing a lot of miles. I do 40 miles a week. Oh, and well. I've been, I haven't, I've been eating much at all. So it's not a good sign because once I get back to normal, I'm going to put on that weight right away. So I don't know what to think. Yeah, but you've changed your your style of running for this, right? So maybe it's muscle mass. Could be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping to get down to 150. I mean, I'm traveling a lot. Like I got another trip. I'm going away soon. Um, So that doesn't help because then I get out of my routine. I feel like when I'm in my routine with the diet, it's, it is. But I do think that like, there's something to be said about like, okay, you do, you change your diet and you have immediate results. And then you hit this sort of plateau where you got to break through and I just haven't broken through yet. And I don't know, maybe it's, I got to switch my diet up a little bit. Maybe I got to switch up the exercise. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's very strange. You yeah. need to uh, so. reach out to Sarah LaCourse. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm always starving too. I like, I'm not eating a lot of calories and I think the calorie in calorie out thing works. Yeah. But to a point, like I think that your body just gets more efficient. It does. If you if you limit your calorie intake, your body just gets more efficient and doesn't burn as many calories. So absolutely, um, that's why that intermittent fasting thing is dangerous. In in the sense that yeah, you know your metabolism, everything slows down to zero because uh, you're on survival mode. Really, I mean your body's amazing. Yeah, it's really yeah. brilliant. Yeah, it's it's interesting and. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, I just think it's like this extreme dieting stuff is a trap because mm. you're only going to just gain that weight back. But I will say like, there's been some positives. I can say like my heart rate, my, my resting heart rate has gone down seven beats nice on average for the, in the last like eight weeks or so. So that's a big, big deal. And, um, yeah, I'm a little bit more consistent in some other things too that we don't have to get into, but, uh, it's, it, you can definitely see a change. Yeah, that's great. Yep. Hmm. Anyway, a um, couple of updates here. We got some news stories we want to dive into here. Stomp, stomp. So Squam Association trails are open again. Yep. So um, there was an update over social media that said that the mud is under control so you can hike that region. You know, we both love that area quite a bit. So Morgan, Percival, um, Sandwich Notch Road, my understanding is, is that's now opened as well. When did When did you check? because I've been running up there. And last time I went up, I think it's open from the Squam side, but not from the Waterville side. But I got could it, be wrong. Got it, all right. Yeah, I, I saw just somebody on social media had said Sandwich Notch Road was open, but what they okay. might have meant is the gate on the Sandwich Notch side, on the Squam side. Yeah, possible. I haven't been up there in a couple of days, but the last time I was up, it was last weekend, so it was a couple of days back. But they had those okay. big, big cinder block things in the way, those road barriers. All right. Well, get up there and get some intel for us. Stop. Yeah, we'll do. Speaking of intel, have you like? I was curious to ask you this. I don't know if this bothers you or not. And any listeners, like, don't don't be shy about reaching out ever. But I'm curious, like, you've become like 
the guy to go to for well sticky conditions. I like, think so. I, I notice at least like once or twice a week, somebody's <laughs> asking you about it. Like, do you care or do you? No, I don't, no, I don't mind. No, I, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. I, I would love for the podcast to be a resource. I mean, reach out. I don't care. I personally don't yeah. care. I mean, you're, you're a busy fella sometimes, but, uh, I'm gen- I mean, if you're throwing me messages on Instagram, I'm, I'm looking around on that site here and there. So yeah, go for it. I, I was chatting quite a bit with, um, M. Denley, Mike Denley, because they had done the Grand yes. Traverse and um, a couple of days back, I think it was Tuesday. So we were just chatting for days about it. You know, yeah, if you guys have questions or, yeah, hit me up. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, Casey. Like when people are excited about it and it's new and then you, you can pass on a little bit of knowledge, it's always fun. Oh, sure. Yeah. And and not just for Welch Dickey, but I mean, Mike and I have a ton of knowledge from being out there. Any questions, throw it. Yeah, Instagram's a better bet than Facebook. I'm not as good as Stomp about following up. <laughs> I'm getting better. I got a busy, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I'm yeah. busy up to nonsense, but. Um, Understood. And then the other update. So last week we talked a lot about river crossings and, you know, the water flow that was going. And it's just shows, it just goes to show you that, you know, a week worth of dry weather can change things significantly. So I took a look like yesterday or the day before of the, uh, the river flow for the east branch of the Pemi, and I think it was down below 500 um, cubic feet per second, which is sort of in that safe mode. I mean, it's running a little bit. I saw some some reports of people getting out to like even Owl's Head and doing the crossings there. So it only takes like a week or so after a big rain event for things to, to get back to normal. Yeah, for sure. It's Mad River's looking pretty good right now, back to normal as well. Yeah, yeah, that's... Things settle down. And then Stomp, I want I have a reminder on our script here that you're gonna use your drama drop here. Yeah. Yeah, we've never used this one. We have several that Paul Bisson has made for us, but we haven't used them, you know, so this would be nice. Mm-mm-mm. We're about to serve up some tasty hiking drama. There's an update on the, remember the story about the donut bakery in North Conway that asked the, um, I think it was the Kennett High School, like that's the local high school in North Conway, um, the students to paint the front of the store and they painted like this really nice mural of like, um, you know, a sunset with some donuts and it's sort of like a a front porch type of deal where there's a... Um, a second roof and that roof has like a flat section that you can paint on. So it's like donuts and sunshine. And then the front entrance just has Levitt's bakery. So it's not a separate sign. It's part of the building. Mm -hmm. The other thing about this building is that like, it's not a building that actually faces the main road on 16. It's kind of a weird building where it like the side of the building is on the front of the road. So you actually have to pull into the parking lot to even see the front of the building for if you're coming from, the north of 16, if you're coming from south, you can see it as you drive past it. But the controversy with this is that the town of Conway has a sign ordinance and some busybody either on this board of selectmen or um, their compliance office or whatever flagged this as a violation of whatever their sign ordinance is. Yep. So basically you've got high school kids doing a project for their art class 
and they're helping out a local business that by all accounts is an excellent business. Great donuts, definitely go there. Um, and now they're getting pushback from the town. So originally they were like, let's let's figure out a compromise here. Maybe we can change the ordinance so that it doesn't fall under a, an illegal sign mandate. Mm-hmm. Since then, the town has not backed off. Luckily, the... Um, the company has gotten the Institute for Justice, which is one of these free speech organizations, sure. to take on their legal case pro bono. So they're not paying anything for it. That's great. But the owners of Levitt um, Country Bakery have basically said that, like, we're gonna we're gonna push back on the town here. We want this to be a lesson in free speech for the students that were involved, mm-hmm. and we just feel like this is the right thing to do because there's obviously like the intent of a law and then there's the um, application you know, of sometimes regulations. people are outside the spirit of the law. So mm-hmm. the, the, but the town for whatever reason, and I'll, I don't know who, whether there's a selectman or somebody else that works for the town that's pushing this, but they're continuing to push back on any attempts to not get fined for this. And the, you know, the town has lawyers that are going after them for this. So right. it continues to just escalate. Crazy story, but yeah, good for them. I mean, I looked at the sign. It looks great. It's actually really nice. It's a beautiful yeah, it's, artwork. It per- perfectly fits into that, it the does. vibe up there. And uh, the town is now selling, of uh, the town, the, the, the owner of the bakery is now selling uh, T-shirts that you can buy that say, sorry, no art today. So if you <laughs> right. want to go there- I definitely recommend anybody that's up on that side of the whites, you know, get over there, grab some donuts, grab some pastries, but also you can get a pretty cool shirt too that says, sorry, no art today. That's great. It's a neat story. Yeah. So that's our hiking It's always drama. interesting to me when, when these politicians have no fear of the, I would be afraid. I'd be like, you know, like, let's, let's be reasonable about this. This is like high school kids. This is like a good business, Mm -hmm. but there doesn't seem to be any fear about like blowback or, you know, they just feel like it just seems like they're just going to do what they want to do and they don't have any fear of repercussions, which is always interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. What town is it again? Conway. Oh, okay. Well, well, let's not get into the politics. Yeah, yeah. Big town, you know. Uh, my guess is there's probably a bunch of my brethren from Massachusetts that have moved up there and have brought their Massachusetts vibes to the town, but I don't know. Don't come at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's complicated. Um, yeah. So Levitt's Country Bakery, check them out. Great place. Um, next up here fight is- Fight the power. <laughs> yeah, fight the power. Uh, next up here is an update on Forest Road- statuses stop so you had given a link to the current road report here right last week it was based off of a different website but this is the u.s uh forest service and they have a link on this link of the current roads so i think this one might oh they call it the roads roundup hashtag roads roundup and it does uh give you a pdf when you open it up but although that one that one's Nah, screw the PDF. That's not right. I think it's the Facebook page that uh, is supposed to be better. But 
Got it. Got it. Yeah. The PDF doesn't look good, but I think that the, yeah, the Facebook page, so I'll link this in the show notes so you can take a look. And there's another link that is sort of like the definitive link. Uh, But a lot of times you just got to troll around social media to see what's going on. And there'll be, I know the 52 with a view Facebook group is pretty good about making updates around this time of the year for forest roads as well. Yeah. Okay, Stomp. So next story we have here is the Alberta wildfires are making for beautiful sunsets here in the region. Also sunrises as well. Oh, really? So Yeah, you're um, out there pretty early. Yeah, 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 there's wildfires up in Canada and um, it's, it's, it's giving people the opportunity to like, basically like what I saw on like Tuesday or Monday morning was you could see the sun, but it looked like the moon. Yeah, like this reddish hue. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really pretty. But it comes with a cost. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's still going, from what I understand. Really? Oh, yeah. They're still battling it. Yep, absolutely. Heard a report this morning about it. Yeah, I was, um, I'm a little bit nervous. We're going out to uh, Yosemite in September, and I'm, like, nervous that, like, there's going to be wildfires or something. But I feel like with the snow this year, I'm hoping that it will limit the amount of fires because I don't want that to ruin our trip. So would you have to fly into for that? San Francisco. Gotcha. Okay. All right. San Francisco. And then I think you got to drive like three or four hours to get to the park. Okay. Wow. Um, All right. So next up, me and you were very nervous about the auto road. I think you you were like doom and gloom about this. You were like, oh, they're never going to to get this open again, right? I guess the crew up there has been hustling day and night. Yeah, yeah they've it. had a good week. So um, yeah, what they've said is that uh, the auto road is planning to open Saturday for drive yourself as scheduled. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll only be open on the weekends until May 27th and then check mount-washington.com for updates including weekday opening plans and they show they they throw a shout out to the cog railroad once again for taking the observers to and from the summit last week so i think any tension that was going on between the auto road and the cog is also squashed mm-hmm. so it's a little love fest going on up there now too. <laughs> that's great yeah oh, it looks like they like, yeah. put dirt they filled in the road with dirt sure so it's a mix of dirt and pavement for now and i'm assuming they'll they'll pave over that yeah as time permits and the weather allows yes good work good stuff um next stop i pulled the story here about the adirondack so we've talked about visitor use in the white mountains around like how do they track the volume of visitors and you know it's the forest service does like this program every five years to survey visitors and they estimate the the volume of visitors in the white mountains. I think there's like last time we did it, there was like 2.6 million visitors, um, in the white mountains. I think that was hikers specifically. And the Adirondacks, I guess there's a bunch of people out there that are saying that like, there's been a huge increase in visitors, I don't know enough about the Adirondacks to know what the lay of the land is, but mm-hmm. my sense is that it's actually a bigger forest than than the whites and more spread out. So I don't know if they even get the same volume as the whites, but there's some articles that are going out um, that they are implementing their own visitor use monitoring project in the Adirondacks, and they've got like a dedicated website 
that they are going to be using. And I think the goal is to determine like what the visitor volume is. There's some public meetings around how they're going to agree to the methodology. Hmm. There's a standard visitor use um, monitoring program that the Forest Service uses, and they're going to, I think, use a similar process for that. And there's a consulting company that's like experts in this area that's going to be working for them. But they basically want to build like a foundation of how they're going to monitor visitors, make the definition, and then... um, I guess, implement this program to monitor the amount of visitors and then evaluate what that means. And the big thing for them is whether or not they want to move to a different type of permit system or not for um, areas that get more crowded. So I think the Adirondacks are looking at this more from the perspective of getting more detailed in particular areas that they see a higher volume of visitors, but um, something to keep an eye on because if it is, if it takes off, it could be something that you see in the whites in the future. I I don't really know, but I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a good way to go about it. Just do diligence, really come up with solid numbers. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it looks like they've got another um, visitor use management study that was linked in the Catterskill Clove area of the of Catskill. So Stosh may know something about that. We can hit him up to ask him some questions. But mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting that more and more it seems like this this sort of visitor use and volume of people hiking seems to get more and more attention. Yeah. All right. Next up, Stomp, you ever, you ever run into a baby deer when you're out wandering around? You ever seen a fawn laying in the grass? <laughs> no. <laughs> you haven't? And no, not a fawn. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right. Let me ask you some. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like we're in the wilderness. Yeah, we're walking in a meadow, and I know that the grass is gonna be tall, and you're gonna be avoiding that because you don't want ticks. But pretend mm-hmm. we're walking in a meadow, and you come <laughs> upon a baby fawn that is laying in the grass. Mm-hmm. Do you a say to yourself, "Oh my God, I gotta save this fawn. It's gonna get eaten by a bear." B do you call 911 and, and call the Forest Service to say, you need to come save this little baby fawn? Or C, do you just say, oh, that's a cute baby fawn. Let me take a picture and then go on my way without touching it? That's a good question. I think I lean towards um, the last two choices. You know, I wouldn't want to bother the animal, but if it was an unusual context i may inform fishing game and say hey i saw this fun here unattended i don't know that seems reasonable but i would not bother it i would not go near it yeah yeah and that's that's basically um the fishing game had put out a um a news story or a a news alert to leave fawns and other young wildlife alone. So in the coming weeks, deers will be giving birth around the granite state with the majority of the deer fawns born in May and June. And each spring, many New Hampshire residents see these young deers by themselves and fear for the worst. Has the mother died? Yeah. Has she abandoned the fawn? The answer in most cases is no. The doe is usually not far off waiting to return to feed their newborn. Right. So after people leave, the answer is C. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although the one time we do C, it's like we're abandoning poor Bambi. No kidding. Mother got shot. Yeah. yeah. Deer is so skittish and just like, boom, they bolt. I guess, I guess they would leave their child behind uh, just to hide from yeah. people. I have a thing going on. I have a thing going on with deer up in my <laughs> neck of the woods. Like I have this trail running thing that I do. And there's a herd of deer that like, I think they're like, acclimated to me 
<laughs> oh my God. What was that movie? They don't really run away. I mean, they run away a little bit, but not really. Like I, I posted some videos on Instagram and like they, they kind of hang out and watch me. Oh my goodness. That's hilarious. You're going to like start documenting everything and talking with them. And Oh my, I have so many pictures of these deers. Like I, I need to start naming them. That's hilarious. You, you're going to be like the Diane Fossey of, uh, deer in Andover. <laughs> Remember her? Could be. Could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to start naming them. I'm going to name them Stomp. That's awesome. Jimmy Chaga. Nobby. It's funny. I have a theory about animals. Like up here, um, it's pretty rural, foresty in Thornton, Campton area. But then you get down to like Laconia, uh, Meredith where Mrs. Stomp works and it's much more busy. She swears that she sees deer all the time. And my theory is that they, they're smart enough to actually go to the places that are more populated because they can't get shot during hunting season. But you know, it's just a dumb theory of mine. <laughs> I like, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think they're more focused on where That's the, the good eats are. Yeah. I think they eat like berries and yeah. green stuff. So there was a black bear spotted in my. So I live in Amesbury, which is not like known for bear territory. There's a black bear spotted. Like every once in a while, there's a black bear that makes its way up on the North Shore. And like we had one in town like probably four years ago. And it was up in a tree. A bunch of people were like taking pictures of it. The thing, the poor thing's horrified. It's got its cubs with it. You know, like somebody called 911. They got like a, a an army helicopter. They've got like SWAT teams. The people are like checking their kids out of school to go see the bear that's in a tree. And I'm like, these people are like maniacs. Like leave the bear alone. Yeah, you have to. It's so dangerous in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, suburban beers. So next up stop, there's a fastest known time attempt going on right now. Heather Anderson, known as Anish, who is a pretty prolific through hiker and FKT um, person. I think she's got the FKT for maybe Mm -hmm. like, at one point she had the FKT overall for the AT. And then I think now she may have like the women's record or something. She's held a number of them. I think at one point she was the overall fastest known time person for an unsupported. I don't know if she still is or not, Um, but she's been out of the FKT world for a while, but she decided to dip her toes back in and she's doing the Pennsylvania section of the Appalachian trail, which is 230 miles. So she kicked off, I think like five days ago or something. And she looks like she's going straight through. She like sleeps on the side of the trail with a space blanket Mm. when she needs to crash, but otherwise she's going. And I think the first day she went like, or the first day and a half, she went 26 hours straight, knocked off 70 miles. And the last update she posted this afternoon was she was three and a half miles from the finish, but she crashed because she had to rest a little bit. Uh, but from what I can tell, she's well ahead of the overall um, FKT for unsupported. I think she's, I don't think there's a women's time. There's only just like a men's time, but like she's still huh. ahead of like both times. Excellent. Wow, that's really neat. Just got me looking up the old records for the entire AT. Yeah. Male and female. Because I was curious if Scott Jurek's record was uh, broken. And it was. He he said it, yeah, in 2018. Yeah, it was broken yeah. But he said it in 2015, 46 days, eight hours, seven minutes. So now it's 41 days. That's a big chunk, huh? 
Who has it now? The male, it's uh, Karel Saab, S-A-B-B-E. And then the female is Liz Mercury Durstein with 51 days, 16 hours. Wow. Okay. Neat. Wow. Yeah, it is. Crazy. Crazy. All right, stop. So I want to get into something that's a little bit of a White Mountain mystery. Do you have a drop that's like White Mountain Mysteries? Oh, that's a good idea, though. That's a really good idea. Well, there you go. We'll get Paul on it. I'll do one right now. A a slasher White Mountain Mystery. (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. All right. So remember, I've talked about this case, I think, two times on the podcast, maybe three. Um... 21-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid, Stefan Porthsu, uh, lived in Lowell, Massachusetts. He went missing in March of 2019. And the reason this has something to do with hiking in the White Mountains is that um, this young man was reportedly seen in the Cutler River drainage and along the Mount Washington Auto Road on Friday, March 8th. In Saturday, March 9th, this initiated a search and rescue um, team to go out and actually search that particular area for the young man. So I want to give a breakdown of the timeline on this one, and then I want to sort of give a little bit of a perspective on, you know, things to think about on this one. So on Friday, March 8th, 2019. This this comes from a variety of articles, but the primary article that I'm referencing is a Lowell Sun article that interviewed the father of Stefan, um, and along with the father, I think the aunt had also been interviewed in this article. So mm-hmm. late morning, Friday, March 8th, 2019, Stefan and his father have an argument they were arguing about the cleanliness of Stefan's room. They wanted, I think the father wanted him to clean his room. He was giving his father a hard time. Apparently Stefan, you know, was quoted in a number of articles that he did have some mental health issues and some challenges. Um, I did a little bit of digging. It seemed like, you know, he had some, you know, he, he worked and he had some good friends over based on social media. So, social kid, but you know, some, some issues there. So he gets into an argument with his father, um, reportedly leaves the house late morning on Friday, March 8th. There's also based on reports by Fish and Game on that same day, he's reportedly seen in the Cutler River drainage. So you go from Lowell to the Cutler River drainage on Friday, March 8th. In addition to that, Fishing Game had reported that there was a potential sighting near the Mount Washington Auto Road on Saturday, March 9th, mm-hmm. 2019. These sightings were reported, my understanding is these sightings were reported like later in the week. So it wasn't like they found out on that Friday and Saturday that he had been reported. It was, they had reported the young man missing the weekend after and then it sounds like some people came forward and said like, oh, I might have saw this guy when I was out hiking. So hmm. the the reports are pretty sketchy because you've got a week time period between when he was supposedly spotted and when they started the search. All right. So as they went back in time, they found that on Sunday, March 10th, 
there was a cell phone ping in Westford, Massachusetts. So again, mm, right. Fish and Games reporting that he was seen on Friday the 8th and Saturday the 9th in and around the Cutler River drainage in the Mount Washington Auto Road. Later, they come to find that there's a cell phone ping in Westford, Massachusetts. On Sunday, March 10th, the family indicates that he went missing. So the family reports him missing on the 10th. The last time they saw him was actually on the 8th. There's also a cell phone ping on the 10th in Westford. The vehicle is eventually found in Pinkham Notch on Saturday, March 16th. Right. All right. That initiates a search. Um, for this young man. And then on Sunday, March 17th, Fishing Game releases a, uh, has a press release indicating they had no luck finding him and that there's, they're winding down the search. So I don't know if they got the sighting um, tips sometime between March 10th and March 16th or if it was when they found the vehicle. Um, right. But it's interesting, on Monday, March 18th, friends and family in, the, in one of the articles report that they found sporting a sporting goods store receipt in the vehicle indicating that he purchased gear to hike with. This was a CBS News article, um, which is interesting to me that the family would be reporting that they found that in his car because you would think law enforcement would have gone through that vehicle, but it sounds like the family had access to the car somehow, which is odd to me. Yeah, it is weird. So you're basically talking about somebody that has, uh, you know, has an argument at home, leaves the house, is reported missing like a day and a half later. Um, At some point during that week, somebody reports that it could have been him up near the auto road. Eventually, they find his car at Pinkham Notch. And then Sunday, the press release goes out saying they haven't been able to find him after searching the area. Um, you know, so it's a bit of a mystery stomp. And I feel like it's pretty rare that someone goes missing. I know we've talked about uh, Michael Morris in, in Franconia, but there's no indication that this person had any experience in hiking. Yeah. It did say that he bought some goods at the sporting goods store that could potentially be used for hiking, but it doesn't give any detail about what he purchased. Right. Um, so I don't really know. The only other thing and the reason why I sort of bring this case back up is that I did get tipped off from somebody that there were flyers going around uh, locally in Lowell, Massachusetts, saying that like they should be looking into potential foul play in this situation. So yeah, I recall that. I don't know. I, I don't know where to go with this one, but I feel like it's fear to like like get let's get the word out on this one. If anybody's listening to this and knows anything, you know, you probably you know want to keep you know speak up to law enforcement if you if you do because you know if he's missing on the mountain, like maybe it's worth doing more of a search. If he's not missing on the mountain, like it seems like this is just like a mystery that no one's focusing on. I, I don't hear it in the news. I don't see much going on on a Facebook page that the family's running that says that they're looking to find him. Mm-hmm. Could be that he took off and he wants to be left alone, but the chances of that happening are pretty rare. So I figured bring it to the audience and maybe it'll get somebody interested in it. Yeah, it's hard to just disappear intentionally. Yeah. 
Exactly. So it's like, it's one of three things. He's either missing on the mountain, something happened closer to home. I think about that cell phone ping in Westford. That was after he was supposedly on the mountain. And then um, otherwise he, he took off on his own. And doesn't want to be found. Yeah, it's a tough one. If if he's yeah. if he's lost on the mountain, I mean, you, should, you just think about how grand and large that whole area is up there. Just yeah, yeah. I I think about that, and I, but I also think about like what are the odds of somebody who has never hiked and has no history of hiking going out and doing a winter hike in March and even making it to the auto road or the Cutler River drainage from Pinkham Notch? Mm-hmm. I feel like that that's not even likely. Well, there there is the option of the alien abduction, which we haven't brought up recently. That's a possibility too. That is true. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Stefan Poritsu, I will link uh, the timeline in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. I'd be curious to know um, what happened to this young man, and I'm not gonna, you know, I got a I got a microphone, so I'm gonna get the word out if I can. Mm, yeah. Anyway, stop. So moving on, you got cat news. What's going on? Yeah, big. This is big news. So Daphne, the assistant executive producer, is just torturing uh, Luna, who's the exec. And uh, we decided to get a a new kitten. We just adopted a new kitten to keep Daphne busy. <laughs> so she'll be coming in about a month from now after she's done um, feeding and whatnot. So a new kitty. On the block. <laughs> so let me understand this. You have a you have a behavioral issue with a cat. Yes. Your cat can't get along with another cat. So Correct. in order for you to solve that behavioral issue, you're going to provide that cat with another cat. Well, Daphne's not really the problem. Lunar is the problem. Lunar's just terrible. Basically, what they do together, they just constantly attack each other, um, hiss at each other. So this will be a distraction for Daphne. That's the theory. So if anybody has any insight into this kitty behavior, let us know. But uh, that's what's going on. So we have a new one coming. This this sounds like a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I really think Daphne will enjoy having the company of a kitten around. She was a mother herself, so she raised the litter. And she's two years old. So I think that will be a, a positive dynamic. We're hoping anyway. How old is Luna? Luna's, we don't really know, but I mean, just looking at her, she's probably maybe 12 years old. So she's getting up there. Okay, She's aging quickly, especially with Daphne, uh, jump scaring her every time she takes a corner. <laughs> <laughs> is there a chance that um, the kitten and Luna bond and Daphne's the odd cat out? Oh, she- Sure, but I doubt it. Historically, Luna has been just a nightmare with every single cat that we've introduced to her. So I, I'm pretty confident that if there's any connection, it'll be with Daphne. Imagine like creating a scenario in your house where you've got like two animals that won't get, and you have to like basically keep them separated at all times. Like that would last about five seconds in my house. I would be like, guess what, Luna? You're now an outdoor cat. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. It's Luna. She's, she's more of a dog than a cat. She's very bossy and, um, she talks, she's very communicative and, um, 
possessive. She's very interesting. Very interesting for a cat. Definitely like a dog. <laughs> I think Mrs. Stomp is like creating these issues just as an excuse to get another kitten. <laughs> It's possible. We have been looking for uh, several weeks now for another cat, but under the same theory. Now, wh- why is it? Why is it like a month wait? Like, what's going on that you have to wait for a month? The kitten is is feeding with the mother at the moment, so they don't like to to break up the the kitten from the mom. You know, you know what you guys should do. We're really getting off track here, but um, <laughs> I follow these like dogs that are like they have TikTok channels and they use like the Phineas and Ferb voice, uh-huh. and it'll be like this is the story of the day that I got kidnapped, and it's like a little puppy that's like in his like litter, and then the the puppy will be like today's the day that I got kidnapped, and he's like I don't know who these people are, but like she's making me call her mom now, and. Mm-hmm. They seem kind of cool. They're giving me cheese or whatever. Like, you should do that with your kitten. Okay. <laughs> From day one. <laughs> Maybe you can monetize it. I don't know. We'll have to give her a name, too, for the show. But we'll see. Yes. Yeah. So, no details on the cat. Yeah. Right. You should not name it Nobby the Cat. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I figure what kind of cat it is. So, we'll, we'll give you details some other time. But, yeah. All right. Stomps up to a lot of nonsense with cats. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp. So, pop culture talk with the Wallflowers at the Flying Monkey. The Wallflowers, is that that group that's on Jacob Dylan? Yeah, you got it. Is that it? Yeah, you got it. Remember back yeah, in the yeah, day? Yeah. Back, They're still around? They're still doing it, yeah. Same original members. And um, I think they came out in the late mid to late 80s or maybe early 90s with those hits like uh, Sixth, Sixth Avenue Heartache and One Headlight and all that. Yeah. So, it was a great show. Yeah. Uh, we got tickets. We went with um, my folks. And uh, it was great. It was a little loud, to be honest with you. I've seen shows in there before that weren't that bad, but this was like loud. I get the impression that Jacob's trying to become the new like Tom Petty, I guess, um, because there is sort of a void in that type of rock and roll at the moment. Um, yeah. So it was a good show. They have a new album out. I think it's called Exit Wounds. Worth listening to. It was really good. And what's freaky is... He looks like Bob Dylan did back in 69. He looks like, I mean, last time I saw Jacob Dylan was way back in the 80s when he was younger. Because mm-hmm. he's like a month older than I am. I think he was born in December, 69. So he looks just like Dylan as a, a young younger man, which is hilarious. So <laughs> yeah, a good show. It says the Wallflowers... They were active in 1989, so I think they blew up in like 92, 93, I think is when they, um, you know, had the the MTV stuff. might have been 95 or 96, something like that, but they they got picked up by MTV in that, you know, mid-90s, sort of huge after the big spike in uh, grunge music, but they, they were sort of like a new wave type of band. Yeah, it's good stuff. I was joking with, uh, you know, my folks and stuff saying that the monkey always brings in these tribute bands. So I'm like, wow, Jacob Dylan could come in here and do a Bob Dylan tribute band. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, good stuff. Yeah. All right. And then other pop pop culture stuff here. So the writer's strike is ongoing. So I expect that we're going to get a delay in a bunch of shows. Mm -hmm. So... 
Tell me about this. House of Dragons is going to get delayed. Um, there's uh, basically like the writers, I think, are looking to get a little bit more of the piece of the pie in streaming revenue. Okay. I don't think that streaming in itself has been... I don't think that they understand the, the profit model or the revenue model and what's capable. I know Disney is struggling right now with streaming. Netflix is definitely making a profit. I think Amazon, I don't know if they make a profit. So I think that there's some difficulty in accounting for you know, how streaming is going and what, what that's going to look like for the writers. So sure. I have no idea how long this strike's going to last, but it's definitely going to impact some shows that we like. Yeah, I wasn't quite aware of uh, what's going on. I heard it just tangentially, but uh, wow. How many weeks has it been going on now? I think it's been going on for like two weeks. I didn't look to see if they've made any attempts at a settlement at this point. I I think as of like two, three days ago, it was still ongoing. Hmm. Um, But the good news is George R.R. Martin is vowing to uh, continue his 10-year streak of not writing in order to show solidarity with the writers. I love that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So, George, keep on not writing. Keep it up. Yes. That's what we get funny. All right. Stop. So, we got a sponsor here. All right. 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Join 450 plus hikers this summer as we hike New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own hiking adventure from a 52 with a view to a Prezi Traverse or climb your favorite mountain. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. So visit alts.org right slash 48 peaks to learn more. And uh, you can get your stickers at Dusky Phonetics as always and spinners down at uh, Daskin Road in Andover. Spinners Pizza Parlor and Ski Phonetics is uh, exit 28 right here in uh, Campton. You can always advertise with us. Anybody wants to plug their product, shoot us an email or a text or whatever, and uh, we'll let you know how that all works. And uh, moving on to the old beer talk, I know we're not drinking anything, but I had um, a clown shoes the other day down at Grotto in Plymouth, and it was actually really cool. Grotto's neat. It's like this little Italian restaurant in downtown Plymouth, and uh, they just happened to have that clown shoes on draft. Boy, was it good. Nice. I have a refrigerator full of beer that my wife had bought me like right before I went on my uh, my little diet here. So <laughs> yeah. I've got so much beer. And every time I open the refrigerator, I'm like, I got to I gotta start drinking soon. So I think after the Mount Washington road race, I'll be... I'll be hitting the sauce again for sure. <laughs> the sauce. That's so funny. <clears throat> I get trips. This is like crazy for the next month and a half. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're supposed to do recent hikes. Like the one day that I had a chance to get out to the Bell Naps, like it was a rain out. So I haven't been able to go. I think last weekend I had to do yard work. The weekend before that was the rain out. Then I was in Florida. I've been able to do anything. I've been doing a ton of trail running locally, but I haven't, I haven't hiked. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I may not be able to host a show next week if I don't hike. <laughs> we got you covered. <laughs> All right. Where'd you go? All right. So I think the lead up to this is funnier than the actual hike itself. So it was last Sunday morning, uh, Mrs. Stomp and I were hemming and hawing about what to hike. And we eventually decided on Mount Prospect, which is in Holderness. Um, it's a cute little hike. So we're driving up for the on-ramp to get onto 93 South. And all of a sudden, 
I just, I'm looking at the, the hill ahead of me and I decide to just go straight. So she looks at me with stink eye and I'm like, you, you got to trust me. We're going to do something I did a couple years ago and you're going to love it. <laughs> I'm like, just trust me. Now the pressure's on. Oh my God. Yeah, it was so funny. So it ended up being um, Bald Mountain, which is in Campton and it's on that New Hampshire Family Hikes website, which is fantastic. They uh, will provide a huge detailed uh, description about the actual hike itself. But this is a modest 2.6 mile loop. And um, it starts uh, with pretty much just open woods. It's not a bouldery path by any means. It's nice and flat. And it takes you up to a view of, uh, let's see, Tenney and Mount Cardigan and uh, Stinson Mountain to the south. And then as you descend the loop back to where you start, you have a northerly view of the Whites, Franconia Ridge in particular, and uh, just more or less that western wall of the Pemi. So it's a really nice, short, gentle hike. Um, very, very nice. We had a couple ticks on us when we came out because the as you're going clockwise around this loop, you come into this big open field. And it was it was low-cut grass, but when we got out, I had one behind my left knee and she had one as well. But that's not too bad for a hike like that. So we immediately went out and got some of that Picaridin uh, spray. So, yeah. Hate ticks, damn it. Ugh. You got to get your nooks and crannies checked. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, one last point about this uh, hike. On the way down, there is... A an old historic settlement down there. There have to be at least half a dozen plus uh, stone foundations, basement foundations, and they're just one on top of another. So it's a really neat area to explore. So check it out; it's a good time. Do you know the Do you know the backstory on that? I didn't have a chance to look, um, but I will come back again and do my homework on that. Okay. Yeah. Report back, but that sounds good. Do you got any plans for? Uh, I'm I'm away this weekend, so I'm no hiking for me. But like, you got any plans this weekend? Maybe Saturday morning. Uh, you know, I've been tempted by the Franconia Ridge, but I have to get back here because we're having uh, my folks over for Mother's Day, and then we're heading to Mass uh, to see uh, Mrs. Stomp's folks as well. So it's going to be a busy weekend. But Saturday morning, maybe yeah, yeah. we'll see. Hopefully, get one get one for the show. Get one for me. All right. Uh, notable listener hike stomp. I feel like we've got a, we've been tagged in a bunch of uh, hikes. Yeah. So it's, it's good the listeners have been getting out. Absolutely. Yeah, we have several. So uh, Nick hikes and plays guitar, did uh, Georgiana, Harvard, and Bald Mountain. And then uh, on a second tag, he did Airline Cutoff, which is his adopted trail. But this is that weird time where there was snow everywhere a couple weeks back, or at least a week. Yep. And he ran into five feet of snow. So there's no way he could do any work on his uh, adopted trail. And uh, that's something we haven't talked about in quite a while. Adopting trails is really cool. That's a nice way to give back to the community. So anyway, Nick uh, just hit Madison, which is great. Sam Hikes NH traced a lot on Mount Monadnock. She covered 6.42 miles, uh, 1,587 feet in three hours. And uh, she conquered uh, several trails on Monadnock. Brady Girl won. Did the Grand Traverse, uh, Tecumseh to Welch Dickey, uh, just a day or two before Mike Denley did it. And uh, everyone's getting out there in that area. I'm glad. I, I'm glad. It's such a beautiful hike. People need to see it. Yeah. Liz Fay uh, did Crawford Ridge Pole Traverse. Ha <laughs> ha. 
That's one of my favorites. Ooh, I like that one. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. So she did the whole thing, I guess, which we haven't done. We have to get the, what, Cotton and Webster slide, I think, to finish that up. Yeah. Remember I made you go down the, the ladders on Morgan? You were like <laughs> a petrified little baby. <laughs> yeah. I was like, just drop your pack. Stompy, it's okay, Stompy. You drop your pack. Yeah. You're okay. I was definitely crying. I mean, you were like Legolas running around with your trail shoes and I was freaking out, like, oh my God, get me off of this yeah, thing. Yeah, you don't like you don't like the ladders. I don't. I don't. Especially that. I, I, I remember going up those without a problem, but coming down those were pretty hairy. Like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's it, huh, Liz? You giving it to Liz? Yeah, I'll give it to her. All right. That's a good Congrats, one. Congrats, Liz. You get the yeah. uh, hike of the week. <laughs> Very impressive. Base Lake Coasters create unique, beautiful, functional, and expertly laser engraved coasters with topographic maps of the 4,000 footers of New Hampshire and more. These coasters are handmade on Cape Cod from slate, quarried in the U.S., and provide a durable and heat resistant surface for your drinks. Each surface features intricate detailing of any mountain topography for the location of your choice. Base Lake Coasters will work with you on your custom hand-designed coasters for any street or topographic map. Let's just say anywhere on earth or beyond. Visit baselate.com today to explore a full range of topographic map coasters and use Slasher10 at checkout for 10% off of your first order. Slasher's Hiking Topic of the Week. So we're going to get into the segment of the week. We're going to enter the Great Gulf Wilderness. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. I love this spot. You should, like, drop in some, like, Jurassic Park music or something. <laughs> I was thinking, like, Fangorn Forest, the Ents. We're entering the Great Gulf. <laughs> so um, I wanted to do a segment on this just because I've had like so many, a, a lot of times like people are doing the terrifying 25, they'll hit this for day hiking. But I think everybody should be, you know, considering this area for uh, summer hikes because I think it's fantastic. It's definitely a challenging area. Mm. So there's not a lot of like... If you're looking for like a slow hike or something that's super easy, like this one may not be your jam, but it's definitely worth getting out there, um, especially if you're going to do an overnight or something. So I wanted to just start off, talk a little bit about the Great Gulf history. So the Great Gulf is located kind of north of uh, Mount Washington. So it was not a, a place that was explored very closely in the early years of the White Mountains. Darby Field, during his expedition... Um, did describe a great precipice to the north of Mount Washington, um, which was clearly the Great Gulf based on his description. And then later, around 1823, Ethan Allen Crawford also described the Great Gulf. Um, at the time, it was originally called the Gulf of Mexico, and there's no known reason for why it was known as the Gulf of Mexico. Huh. Maybe just a reference to the way the Gulf looks. On a map? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that it was pretty common for, um, you know, people to co-opt names of different geographical locations hmm. 
in the area, like I know there's sections of Maine that have like country names like Denmark and Sweden and Mexico. Um, so it could just be that they, you know, same sort of naming convention, they ran out of ideas, so they just picked that. But um, it did eventually become documented as the Great Gulf. The first visitor to be documented in the Great Gulf was a gentleman by the name of J.W. or James Watson Robbins. Mm -hmm. Uh, This guy was a visitor to the Great Gulf in 1829. And like many of the early visitors, he was an academic from, he was a Yale graduate. Um, He was a... um, I think a graduate, uh, or he was in West Point as well. Um, he began studying medicine, graduated from Yale Medical School. And then he spent about six months in 1829 in a botanical exploration of New England states. So as part of that, he went into the Great Gulf in New Hampshire. And um, there's some, I think Harvard has his notes going back and forth with another researcher about what he discovered there. So you can actually go to Harvard's online site and see mm-hmm. some of those old notes where he describes what what uh, what he found, mostly technical scientific stuff about plants and flowers. Wow. Um, first trail in the Great Gulf was blazed in 1881. So... Um, hmm. This trail was blazed by uh, Benjamin Osgood, who was a guide working out of the Glen House in Pinkham Notch. So if that name sounds familiar, uh, the Osgood Trail is named after Benjamin Osgood. Okay, so that was the trail? Um, I don't know. I I think that, um, I suspect that like that, the Osgood Trail was probably part of what he blazed. Mm-hmm. But the trails didn't really take off until uh, probably 1908 to 1910 was the period where Warren Hart oversaw the construction of a series of trails in the area, starting with the Great Gulf Trail, which traversed um, the Gulf and climbed the headwall and ended near the spot where um, there's a couple of photos that I'll include um, are taken up on the on the headwall. There was another trail named Six Husbands that was opened that went to the summit of Mount Jefferson by way of the steep slopes of the right center of um, this photo that I'm referencing. And then there were two other trails, the Adams Slide Trail, which is abandoned, Mm -hmm. and the Buttress Trail, which climbed Mount Adams. And then there was also the Wamsuda and Chandler Brook Trail that were built. So these were all built between 1908 and 1910 by Warren Hart. Wow, that's some that's some rugged work. Rugged Holy work. Moly. So, um, and at the time, the Great Gulf was still privately owned. So there was a lot of that conflict between the the forester, the the people that were building like the trails and the the lumber barons. Wow, crazy. Yeah. So um, I guess at the time that he was building it, the Great Gulf was in private hands. But by 1916, remember how we talked about how like it was one thing to establish the White Mountain National Forest, but you also had to procure the money to purchase the land. Mm -hmm. By 1916, that land had been purchased by the U.S. Forest Service and then eventually became part of the White Mountain National Forest. And then in 1964, it was designated as the Great Gulf Wilderness, which provided it greater protections. Um, And, you know, essentially like that area has been pretty much untouched outside of like logging operations Mm -hmm. uh, looks pretty similar to what it looked like in, you know, a hundred, 200 years ago. So 
it's a pretty interesting story. And then there's also a link that um, I will put in the show notes about the history of the Great Gulf, which is from of um, Appalachia Magazine in 2015. David Gavatsky um, had written a, a great article, um, and he actually has some pictures of the la- the early ladders on the Six Husbands Trail, which Stomp, <laughs> you would not be going near. <laughs> no kidding, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he. He gets into like a lot of detail about Warren Hart and um, sort of about the the rivalry that he had with Rainer Edmonds, who was another um, trail builder. Um, and I guess they had just sort of different philosophies around how they built trails. Like Edmonds was like always looking to like have, you know, these sort of gradual trails where I think that this guy Hart sounds like he was a little bit more of a masochist. So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting. So... I will include this article in the the show notes for everyone to read, but I figured we'd geek out on a little history first. All right, so now um, moving into 2023 hiking trail stomp. So if you're going to hike in the Great Gulf, the trailhead is located off of Route 16, past Pinkham Notch, uh, just before Gorham as you're coming down 16 from Pinkham Notch. It's on the left-hand side. Pretty large parking lot, probably can fit like, what, 50 50, 60 cars in there, I would guess. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, so plenty of parking in there. You usually don't have any issues. I've never really seen cars spilled out onto 16 in overflow, but mm-hmm. maybe it happens. I don't know. Um, right. Maybe I'm overestimating the number of cars that can park there, but it's a pretty good volume. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you enter the the main trail, you're entering the Great Gulf Trail. Great Gulf Trail itself is probably, I think, about seven or eight miles of trail, maybe a little bit longer. The first three miles are, are generally, the lower section are flat. They follow the west branch of the Peabody River. And this is actually a great hike for anybody that's looking to do a hike where they want to sort of relax in a river. Obviously, you want to take a look at how the the river's running but typically in the summertime when it's not a high water event this area is very easy to sort of hike down get out to a lot of different places where you can relax on rocks there's not a lot of waterfalls it's very accessible um it's pretty wide as well so you can actually get a lot of sunshine sunshine yeah. in this section of the river so it's something i recommend to people like it's not really a tubing place but it's a great place to go and swim and relax if you want to just kill a half a day with the kids. It's it's pretty safe in that area most of the time. Yeah, this lower section to me is a little confusing sometimes because it does intersect with various cross-country ski trails. So you have to really pay attention at times. It's been a couple of years since I've been out there, but uh, just that first mile or so before you get back to the bridge by Route 16, it can get a little weird if you're just, you know, gazing off somewhere, not paying attention. So just be alert. Yeah, no, that's a good call. And I always forget about those cross-country trails. Um, And right as you enter the Great Gulf, um, there is a wooden bridge that that, uh, goes over the west branch of the Peabody River. And, you know, it's a pretty cool place. Good good place to take a photo. Yeah. So. Epic. Yep. So you make your way down the Great Gulf. Again, you are on that trail. You're, You're... along the river most of the way. Um, and then sort of your first option for branching off of the Great Gulf Trail is the Osgood Cutoff. And there's a couple of different ways that you can get to this. There's like two two branches of it. You can, you can leave the Great Gulf Trail on the first right and head right out to the Osgood 
tent site, or you can continue onward um, and then loop back around to the uh, the Osgood tent site. And I think the the father option is the Osgood cutoff, and then the Osgood trail is the one that breaks away early from the Great mm-hmm. Gulf. And there is a nice tent site there. Um, that you can stay at. I don't know if there's a caretaker or if it's sort of a self-service uh, tent site. I've never stayed there. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, but it is along the Appalachian Trail. So, um, you know, you do get some through hikers, I think, coming down that way uh, in the summertime months. And I have heard that it does fill up because it is pretty accessible. There's not a lot of elevations at 2,400 feet of elevation gain. So right. it's a good spot to go in. A lot of people will hit that on a Friday night and then, mm-hmm. you know, go in camp and then head off for their adventure. The Osgood trail, um, eventually makes its way up to Madison, mm-hmm. Uh, I find this trail to be very difficult just because it's got so many false summits, but um, it's a it's a good way to go up to Madison. Sometimes if the wind is coming directly from the north, mm-hmm. it's a good way to sort of come over the or come under the wind a little bit. Yeah. You do hit sort of the side of the mountain at a certain point. So you do, you know, there's no way to avoid the wind completely, but it is a way to, on a high wind day, you can feel it out a little bit better, get higher above tree line. One of my favorites, despite the, the yeah. false summits, one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting, um, interesting hike. So, if you decide to forego the Osgood Trail, um, what ends up, what your next option is, is to go up to the intersection of the Madison Gulf Trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison Gulf cuts across; it's sort of like the perpendicular um, intersection of the the Great Gulf Trail. And you can take the Madison Gulf Trail back over to the auto road and into Pinkham Notch if you want. Most people would take the Madison Gulf Trail and actually climb Madison Gulf up the southern um, section of Mount Madison and you emerge right below Star Lake. Right. And then from there, you can head over to Madison Spring or you can head up to... Um, Mount Adams, but you essentially come to the the right side of Star Lake, and um, it intersects very closely with the Buttress Trail at the top. There, <laughs> kick your Buttress Trail. Have you ever done that? Yeah, kick your Buttress Trail, dude. I haven't done that oh. one, but I have done Madison Gulf, and it's a it's a tough steep climb. You're sort of in the trees for most of that climb. Hmm. You break out above treeline around probably 4,000 feet. And then you're actually not that far below Star Lake once you, once you break above tree line. And it's, it's, it is an awesome view back of like the great Gulf and the auto road from, uh, from Madison Gulf. Gotcha. What can you compare Madison Gulf trail to? I would say the closest is great gully in on Mount Adams or maybe the Sphinx trail. Gotcha. Okay. I've done Sphinx. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, more so Great Gully just because it's like you're on a head wall, but you're you're not above tree line, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're surrounded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if you forego Madison Gulf, then you continue onward to the Great Gulf. And from there, you'll get to, and I'll, I'll just mention that there is a... Um, a campground in this area called the Bluff that you can stay at that does have beer boxes. Again, this is a 2,400 feet of elevation as well, I believe. Mm. So um, there is camping options there. 
I don't think that this is a staffed campground. Maybe a caretaker takes money. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't do the research on that. Um, but if you continue on the Great Gulf, you come to a... Um, actually, before you come to the four-way, stop, four-way intersection, there is a cutoff to Chandler Brook Trailhead, which essentially just goes from Great Gulf up to the auto road around mile four. Um, so... Right. I think that there's, you know, if you want to do that Chandler Ridge cutoff, I don't know the appeal that much, Stomp. I think you played around up there looking for the abandoned auto road in the past. Right, right. So you can certainly explore up there, but I just never have. Right. Yeah, I was going to mention that. They come in and out of that whole area. Yep, exactly. Um, so you can you can hit Chandler Brook. Then moving forward along the Great Gulf, you come to a four-way intersection um, and to your left is the Wamsetta Trail, which again, as you go into your left, that basically means you're heading to the auto road. The Wamsuda Trail, I know I'm going to get like, uh, people are going to be like, you pronounce Wamsuda incorrectly, Mike, but um, <laughs> that takes you up to mile six of the auto road. Yeah. And then you can connect with Nelson Crag and um, that, that particular area up there if you want to. I've never done that. Mm-hmm. Um, the more common approach is to take a right that takes you along the Six Husbands Trail and then you have an option to either go to the right to go up the Buttress Trail, which takes you um, up to Star Lake and you come out close to where Madison Gulf uh, comes out. And I think my understanding with the Buttress Trail is that it's not traveled very frequently. You're pretty well enclosed inside of the trees and that it's it's sort of going up the side of a head wall. And I've never done it, but it's it, I've heard it's a tough trail. Yeah, I've, I've done it with Mrs. Stump once. There are sections of almost like bouldery talus field that you have to cross over that are pretty intense, um, but it's a challenge. Yeah, and I don't know exactly where the Adam Slide Trail is, but my understanding is is that it's somewhere like intersecting where the Butcher's Trail is. Yeah, that would make sense. Uh, I don't know exactly the details, but hmm. um, but if you forego the Butcher's Trail and you've taken that right off of the Great Gulf, that takes you to Six Husbands, which is a, um, a another terrifying twenty-five hike. This is a steep hike that takes you up to Mount Jefferson. And the Six Husbands Trail, my perspective on this one is that it's difficult, but it's difficult in the lower sections. There's a there's a, um, a ladder section, and then there's a hard left that you need to take, and then a 90-degree turn. And a lot of people get turned around down there because it's very mossy. It's not well-blazed or marked, and you do get turned around in that area. But the Six Husbands Trail, once you get past that section, it's a great climb up a steep section of Mount Jefferson. Hmm. Yeah. Getting me psyched to go in here again. I love that area so much. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, then the the final section is if you decide that you're going to go the last three or four miles on the Great Gulf Trail, um, you would forgo Wamsuda and Six Husbands. You would head forward. You're going to get to a uh, wilderness campsite, which is located around the 3,200-foot mark. This is the section of the trail where you will start to see more and more 
rock areas where you can sort of sit along the Peabody River, enjoy waterfalls. Um, you can you easily access water sources. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some swimming spots in there. You know, plenty of places to get water, and you know, there's wide enough sections where you can sit in the sun, and you'll tend to see hikers in this area kind of chilling out and having their lunch along the Peabody River, and it's it's just a beautiful spot. Yeah, agreed. Um, once you pass the sort of the the source of the river, you get to another intersection. Um, and this intersection, basically, you can go right or left. If you go right, that takes you directly up to the Sphinx Trail, which will connect with the Gulf Side Trail and the Appalachian Trail uh, just north of Mount Clay and south of Mount Jefferson. That's right. The Sphinx Trail is another trail similar to Madison Gulf, which is sort of like enclosed you're basically hiking up like a waterfall. Yeah, yeah. The top of Sphinx is when I uh, when I was a naughty naughty boy. I used to camp on the backside of that. <laughs> Oops! Shame drop yep. in there. <laughs> I just didn't Shame know. Drop. I just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. No, we forgive you. Mm-hmm. Um, Sphinx Trail is a little sketchy. It's not well blazed. There's a couple of like um, bootleg rock cairns that sort of signal when you should go across the water one way or the other. Easy to get lost, easy to head down the wrong side of the drainage. And, you know, you just have to pay attention to um, the, the the trail. If you take your time and you kind of look, you'll see it. But a lot of times you can get lost down there. Mm-hmm. And then the last section is continuing on the final two, three miles of the Great Gulf Trail. Um, you'll head to a section which is called probably one of the most unique areas in the White Mountains from my perspective is um, a mountain tarn that's at 4,300 feet of elevation called Spalding Lake, oh, which is yeah. a pretty decent sized little lake that you can see when you're up on Mount Washington or Jefferson and great place to sit, have lunch. Um, it's sort of inky black water. Mm-hmm. But it's a beautiful area. Have you been to Spalding Lakes? I sure have. Yes. Coming down Sphinx, you pass that. So I've gone past it a few times. Absolutely beautiful. Yep. Yeah. And coming down Sphinx, you actually have to take a right back up the Great Gulf Trail to get to it. You can see it as you're coming down in some points. But yeah, yeah, it's a great area. Um, It's kind of a flat area that you then, when you leave Spalding Lake, it gets very tricky because there's a lot of blowdowns. There was like some sort of like a a mini twister tornado type situation in that area. All the blazes got knocked out when I was down there Hmm. and you had to basically... You know, the 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 trail was completely wiped out. So you had to like climb through these branches, find the trail. I got off trail a little bit, but eventually what ends up happening is that you do make your way to a sort of rocky section that reminds me of like the lower part of um, Huntington Ravine. And then eventually you make your way up this head wall that is, uh, it's, it's mostly, I think, it's mostly like unsteady rock. And you're climbing up along a, a waterfall. So I did it in August, so the water wasn't running very hot, but you could still hear the water underneath the rocks running very fast. <laughs> and you do tend to go kind of back and forth across that waterfall. And then eventually you make your way up to, um, you know, just below the summit, you connect with the Gulf Side Trail and, you know, you can see the the... Cog Railroad when you get up there. I think the top section of the Great Gulf Trail, if I recall correctly, is a little bit more slab 
than um, than rock. But yeah, that's what I've heard. It's, it's a great climb, steep climb. Oh, for sure. Probably similar to um, what's the other side there with the subway? Just oh, King Ravine Trail. King Ravine, yeah. yeah. Very similar. Yeah, for sure. Very similar. It's about 1,200 foot climb, uh, very steep the whole way up. But it's one of those climbs where you're like, it's open air. So you're, you got the adrenaline going because you got the constant views and it's like you <laughs> want to stop as many times as you can to take in the view on a good day. Yeah. So, um, all said and done, I think the Great Gulf from the trailhead up to Mount Washington is something like eight or nine miles, maybe seven, seven to nine miles, somewhere in that that range. Um, I'll put some of the GPS tracks that I've done in the Great Gulf. I'll put those in the show notes so people can check them out. But it's definitely a great area, and um, water sources are abundant. You know, you've got plenty of options on the Peabody River. You can take from Spalding uh, Lake if you need to. So you never have to carry a lot of water in that area because it's plentiful. Absolutely beautiful. Makes you want to get out there, Stomp? Oh, big time. Yeah, I think I'll try to hit that sometime this summer. It's been a long time. Yeah. Like that, that was generally... I'll be down for that. That was, that was my loop, like I'd mentioned. I mean, I, I never did a full Prezi because I was always doing a variation on Northern Presidentials. Uh, just because I had my car parked at one spot. So I would go up and then down various routes and, you know, so I just love it in there. It's so great. Yep. Yeah. And like I said, there's the Osgood tent site, there's the bluff, which is another tent site, and then there's a wilderness tent site. Um, And then I think there's a fair amount of options to do, uh, you know, legal wilderness camping. There are a couple of reminders on the regulations specific to the Great Gulf. There's no wood or charcoal fires allowed in any locations, so no fires whatsoever. There's no camping within a quarter mile of the Great Gulf Trail between its junction with the Sphinx Trail and the Gulf Side Trail. So that whole section near Spalding Lake mm-hmm. and um, and the Great Gulf quarter mile, no camping within any of that area there. Yeah. And then um, no camping within 200 feet of any trail except at designated sites. And like I said, there's like three designated sites. There might be a fourth one that I'm missing um, closer to the junction of um, the Sphinx and um, Great Gulf. But I think that may just be the wilderness site that I'm, I'm talking about here. So okay. um just remember that, that there are special rules. The biggest one being no wood or charcoal fires. And and you can see those additional regulations on the U.S. Forest Service sort of camping, backcountry camping guide that I'll include in the show notes. Excellent. Okay, we're getting out of the Great Gulf Stomp, and then we are going into um, a message from the hiking buddies, right? Yeah, let's check it out. Hey everyone and happy trails from the hiking buddies. It's Lynn with a quick update on Emily's hike for you. We first wanted to thank every single person that's gotten involved so far. It's been an absolutely incredible outpouring of support. So far we have over 400 hikers signed up to participate and have raised just under $27,000 in support of Emily's Hike. So thank you so much, everyone, that's participating. If you have not gotten involved yet, you can certainly go to hikingbuddies.org on the Emily's Hike page. There's plenty of time to sign up for a hike still, or join us at the after party at Bretton Woods Lodge. You can purchase a ticket for that online as well. If you have questions or suggestions, go ahead and email us at info at hikingbuddies.org, 
and one of us will be happy to to talk to you. So again, thanks everyone for your support. We are so proud to be on this mission along with Emily's family and the Emily M. Satello Safety and Persistence Charitable Foundation. Together, we are going to make an impact on safety and awareness in the White Mountains and beyond. So thanks everyone for your support and we wish you very safe and happy trails out there. Want ventilation and less sweat on your back when backpacking? Check out Vaucluse Backpack Ventilation Gear. Back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. It's uncomfortable and a risk factor causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Vaucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame is an accessory that installs in your favorite pack 18 liters to 55 liters, creating a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. They're releasing their Generation 2 frame now as we speak. It weighs only 4 ounces and handles the heaviest pack loads. So whether you're in hot or cold temps or have a pack with a curved frame, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer for ventilation and airflow. So visit vaucluscare.com to order a ventilation frame today and use that code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, for a $10 discount. Right. Yeah. I got, um, I got my daughter's, um, she's got a ultimate direction fast pack 25 and I got her set up with the Valcluse, um, on her pack and fits perfect. Yeah. I already have one on mine, but it fits perfect. Uh, that's great. And, um, we haven't gone out with her yet to go hiking, but we will. And, you know, she's excited about it. Yeah. Report back and, uh, give us some information about it. Yep, yeah, I'll check to see if she gets sweaty or not. <laughs> All right, Stomp, so we got some recent search and rescue news. These are the first couple of national stories, and then we got two local stories here. Okay. So... This first one is, it was a reports of a missing hiker. A couple of people sent me this out of Glacier National Park. Young guy um, that was missing and luckily he was found. So Glacier National Park officials confirmed Tuesday that 19-year-old Matthew Reed had been found after being last heard from Friday around the time he began hiking along Huckleberry Lookout Trail. So he was reported missing on Sunday, so about two days. Uh, he was located Monday night after an expanded search was launched that morning with a party of about 30 people that included Parker. They must have been pumped, mm-hmm. you know, all day, and they find him on Monday night. Uh, oh, yeah. They, were, they used a helicopter, and they detected a heat signal in the thick forest, and luckily, you know, they were able to find him doing that. So he was placed in the helicopter and flown to an ambulance. Um, I guess he went missing after he stepped into a drainage on Huckleberry Mountain where there was deep snow. Officials said the conditions along the higher altitudes of the trail were winter-like. He got stuck in chest-deep snow, lost his phone, lost his water bottle, lost his shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So he was unable to get back up to the trail. But again, like this, this time of the year... And I know I'm used to like keeping my shoes pretty loose on me, but like you definitely want to make sure that you you tighten your shoes up a little bit so you don't get stuck losing your shoes while dropping down into like a monorail or something. It happens all the time. It's unreal. Yeah. 
yeah, you can be screwed if you can't find your shoes or you can't get out or something. Like, mm-hmm. definitely worth tightening your shoes a little bit when you're out there. Yeah. Something you don't think about that much, but... Um, and then this next one stop is 60-year-old hiker from North Carolina was found alive after she disappeared along the Appalachian Trail in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So um, this happened, I think, last week. So Marta Bowen was located several miles south of where she was last seen at her campsite on the Appalachian Trail in Kent, Connecticut. Um The missing adult had been safely located and is being treated by emergency services. Connecticut State Police um, wrote on Facebook, we thank everyone for their help. Apparently, the hiker was lost on the trail since Wednesday morning. Um, She came across other hikers on Friday and called 911 from one of their cell phones. So this, this woman was a resident of Durham, North Carolina, worked at a local hospital there, She'd been with two friends when they stopped at a campsite for hikers along the trail on Tuesday. Officials said her friends noticed she was missing the following morning and that she had left her cell phone in hiking gear. So either maybe she went to the bathroom and got lost or maybe she decided to walk off on her own to sort of get some peace and quiet or maybe aliens abducted her. We don't know. <laughs> right. But there was a whole search going on, ATVs, helicopters, drones, the whole thing. And um, luckily, you know, she ran across these other hikers. So um, the location's near the border of New York State. So, you know, they were they were pretty close to areas where they could they could initiate a good search there. But you know, luckily, she was found. Yep. And this is a good one to read the. Conversation in the comments. Very interesting. There's a lot of expert (laughs) hikers that know exactly what they would have done to not have that happen. Oh, yeah. It gets a little rougher than that. No surprise. Oh, yeah. It's always always rough, but, you know, stuff happens. Who knows? Um, This next one is a sad story. So, um, 25-year-old hiker is missing in Joshua Tree National Park. Unfortunately, Uh, Park Rangers confirmed on Wednesday of this week that um, they're scaling back the search for this young man. So Mm -hmm. 25-year-old hiker, yeah, he was dropped off at Black Rock Campground on Sunday, April 30th and was supposed to be picked up on May 5th. So he's out there for like a five or six day hike. He didn't show up and was reported missing. Um, Hikers described as athletic, experienced, long-distance hiker familiar with Joshua Tree Park. So. This is everything we talk about. Is oh, like, sure. Do you have experience? You're fit. You know, it can go south for anybody. Right. Um, no context so, here at all. Nothing. No, nothing. it just says um, they confirmed that the Joshua Tree Search and Rescue Team was deployed. In addition, helicopters and drones from the Marine Corps were issued or were deployed. Um, this doesn't mean that the search and rescue operations are over. It just allows the teams to rest and focus on priority areas. So my guess is that a lot of times with the, especially with a fit hiker, you know, they, they, they'll go by what they have for information as far as where they were planning the hike. But sometimes people can cover way more ground than, than you expect. And then it, it causes the search and rescue team to have to look in areas that aren't obvious. Right. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange story. Yeah. 
So we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, and Stomp, this next one is sort of like a, I don't know if this is a hiking story per se, or if this is just like sort of like a crime story. But, right. Um, unfortunately, there was a story out of Arizona that, um, you know, a 29-year-old woman was killed while hiking on a Phoenix trail last week. She was unfortunately you know, stabbed 15 times. Um, she was found in a desert area around 10.30 in the morning local time, about 24 hours after the attack. Um, a 22-year-old suspect was arrested. He was seen on video after the um, the attack, and it turns out that he's a gentleman that lives, or no, I wouldn't even say a gentleman, a guy that lives yeah. in the same apartment complex, and I think that this hiking trail is close to um, this particular apartment building. By all accounts, this 29-year-old woman that was the victim was a great person, was getting her life um, moving, you know, was living a great life and, and, you know, this this is just snubbed out. So it's yeah, just sort of a reminder that as safe as you feel on the trail sometimes, like just keep an eye on things. I don't know if there's anything she could have possibly done to, to cause this to not happen, but it's just a reminder that you got to keep an eye on everybody that you come across in the wilderness or on trails. Yeah, no doubt. Situational awareness. Yeah, hopefully this dude will just, if he did it, he'll rot in hell and then that'll that'll be the end of him and he's off the streets forever, but yeah. we'll see. All right. All right, so on to a local story here, Stomp, injured hiker on Mount Major. So Mount Major and Chakor seem to be the hot spots right now. Yeah, they are. Um so 4 p.m. on May 7th, Fishing Game responded to a call for assistance for an injured hiker on Mount Major in Alton, New Hampshire. 31-year-old hiker from South Portland called 911 requesting assistance. This hiker was hiking with three companions and suffered a back injury um, after reaching the summit. Um, so she was unable to walk due to her de- debilitating back injury. It was about a mile and a half from the trailhead. So Lakes Region Search and Rescue responded um, and they were able to reach this hiker. They were stabilized and transported by rescue litter to the trailhead parking area. She was then transported by ambulance. So this is the first time I think I've ever read a back injury um, Uh, in a fishing game report that I can think of. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Surprisingly, though. Not related to like a fall off of like, I know we've had falls off of waterfalls and stuff, but not. Just a random back. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Less common. So, yeah. So anyway, she got a ride down in the um, the litter. <laughs> right, and I'm sure her back felt great after that. Ugh. Yeah, like that must have hurt too. <laughs> but hopefully she's feeling better. So. <laughs> right. Litters are not comfortable. Ooh. No, I can't imagine. I remember seeing that. I saw like a picture of you in one of oh, them yeah. recently, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I got to play patient uh, a couple of weeks back and it was scary as hell. Holy moly. Oh, God. Yeah. They must have loved carrying 200 pounds of <laughs> on that thing. I gave them the warning, but they were cool with it. They're like, okay, right. suit yourself. Uh, you're like, my beard weighs five pounds alone. <laughs> oh, so, funny. All right. So final story here. So this is a sad story. So drowning victim recovered from Bow Lake. Mm-hmm. So um, fishing game dive team recovered the body of a gentleman from Plymouth, Mass, out of Bow Lake in Stratford. Um, this gentleman had been fishing the day before and was reported missing yesterday by his wife when he did not return home. Search for him went until the dark um, and was called off until the morning. 
Uh, his body was recovered around 15 feet offshore and about eight feet of water. So, gosh, that's really close. Oh, no kidding. It's like right there. Yeah, yeah. Right there at the edge. So, yep. cause of the accidents under investigation. The gentleman was not wearing a life jacket. Uh, Fishing Game wants to put out a reminder to all boaters that water temperatures are still cold and that state law requires each boater to wear a, uh, a life jacket and have one with them when recreating on New Hampshire's water bodies. Uh, in addition, children ages 12 and older must have a life jacket on at all times. So, yeah, th- this is the time of the year where you're wearing heavier clothes, you hit the water. You're done. You know, you're done. It's so fast. Yeah, especially if you're you're not a swimmer. It happens so fast. But you, you read this paragraph again. It, it says it requires each boater to have. So there's a difference. There's a distinction. Kids have to wear them, but boaters just have to have them. But man, I'm telling you, you just Correct. cannot mess around with the temps right now with the water. No. Not at all, not at all, yeah. and especially if you're not a strong swimmer or, you know, sometimes I see these these guys fishing and they wear the work boots and like the flannel shirts and you go in in water like that. And again, I'm not saying that that happened in this case. Um, you know, the weather is fine and everything, but, um, you know, it's just you got to be careful out there. So, yeah. Wow. Good stuff. Uh, but that's it, Stomp. We are done. This one's going to come in around an hour and a half, hour and 40, so a little shorter than some of yeah, our shows. But it's a little mini. I got to hit the road anyway, so. Yeah, safe travels. Yep, yeah. We, what do we get? What are we getting plans for next week? We got we got a plan? Are we going to wrestle up a guest here? Uh, we we recording still or no? Uh, I guess not. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.